everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my co-hosts and producer friends, uh, Dr. Michelle Hammerdash and Dr. Jimmy Van. Hi guys. Hello. And we are here today to discuss Kasuo Ishiguro's new novel, which came out earlier this year, Clara and the Sun. Um, I think we were all a bit uh, surprised by the appearance of this novel. It's been quite a few years since um, Ishiguro has brought out a new novel. And certainly this has started to get some critical attention and has been long listed for awards but I'm really keen to find out what Michelle and Jimmy think about the book especially since I have no idea we usually have a little discussion about our thoughts before we talk but this time we're going in completely blind so I'm going to throw to Jimmy and ask him oh, what I, were your thoughts on Clara and the Sun? <laughs> I'd like it to be a bit surprised I think I'd, can we start with Michelle? Oh, oh talk about passing the buck Fine. Okay. all right look I think it's this. It's it. It was the kind of book where I um, loved the afterlife of the book. I think that the the concept, um, the concepts that are being dealt with, uh, there's sort of elements of horror. There's this, um, but I found that the conceit of a story filtered through that limited, um, you know, sort of focaliser Clara, um, you know, sort of with that sort of mixture of naivety and um, perspicacity, um, I, I can't love that. I can't love that style of narrative. It's, it's not something I can appreciate it. I can appreciate, you know, sort of that wonderful crystalline quality of his prose, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, that, that lucidity of, of the, the storytelling of that, you know, sort of, you know, sort of beautiful surface of the narrative and then all of the wonderful sort of themes that get drawn in through that story. But I really find that sort of Martian perspective hard going um but we so should hard. say that that clara i should have should have prefaced this by saying that clara is an artificial friend so she is an artificial intelligence kind of figure which accounts for that voice she doesn't know she doesn't understand how the world works and so often a lot of the the narrative is spent on her sort of figuring out how humans exist which means that we're in her head knowing how humans exist but we're having to walk through the process of figuring out what humans how humans live with her which can be quite frustrating I agree you know that that conceit of making strange um you know sort of the world that which is known you know it, it, it's 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 such a sort of um you know sort of it's such a well-loved trope in many respects but I the, the experience of reading that compared to perhaps what my responses were afterwards when I thought about the ideas um, and, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the, I guess, the places that he took us, which were quite ranging and quite surprising. Um, but from the, from the perspective of s stories of his where I guess I've just fallen in love, you know, sort of from the beginning, um, I, I, that, that was not the experience of, of reading um, and probably wasn't meant to be the experience of, of, of reading this novel. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of it, it just meant that I, 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 I love so much of, of, of his work. Um, and then this one, I love the idea of the work, but I did not love the experience of reading it. I feel the opposite in some ways 
although I, I broadly agree um, that I didn't get as sort of emotionally involved as I usually do with an Ishiguro novel. But I found it really easy to read. Like I just sort of sped through it uh, because his prose is quite straightforward. Um, so I found the experience of reading it very easy. But I think I found the book in, on the whole to be very messy. I feel like it was a collection of ideas without a story, <laughs> without a real story or a really properly thought through story. And there were such huge gaping holes in, I felt, like both the narrative and both the ideas and how they sort of strung together that I kind of felt very dissatisfied by the end. Uh, so even though it was easy to read on a like page by page, minute by minute level, in the end I found myself when I got to the end thinking, ah, that didn't cohere for me in the way that I usually do uh, find that Ishiguro's novels cohere as a whole. Now, Jimmy, you're not getting away with it now. I'm going to have to throw to you to tell me your thoughts because I feel like there might be negative. No, okay, so um, I think probably uh, I do want to give a little bit of a spoiler warning because I think there are a lot of revelations in, in this novel that's best for readers to encounter them themselves. So if you haven't read the book novel and you're interested in reading the novel, maybe just pause it, pause the podcast now and come back to it after you read the novel because I do want to discuss some of the plot in the novel because I think it's important to, to look at them. My reaction to the novel is actually completely different to both of yours. I loved it. Um, I loved almost every minute of it. it. It's been such a long time since I've read an Ishiguro novel where I just sort of uh, fell in love with the world and fell in love with not necessarily the characters in that world, but I did fall in love with, with Clara as a character. I, I found her quite a really um, engaging, lovable uh, voice and quite a unique voice too, but at the same time, not unique. So for me, this novel feels almost like a distant cousin of the Never Let Me Go world, but also of the um, Remains of the Day world as well, because Clara, I think, exists almost like the two narrators of both of those novels. Uh, and I think Ishiguro does quite a lot of this in, in his novels where he deals with characters who just so stoically accept their fate that, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart, um, the way they just sort of unconditionally go about um, accepting some of the, the things that they have to, to put up with. I mean, we, we see that very, very clearly in Never Let Me Go, obviously, um, but also to a large extent, The Remains of the Day as well. And Clara falls into that same world. And I thought it was an interesting way of framing that character to make it an android because androids, I suppose, programmed to obey and to never, you know, sort of you know, be away from that. And even though there are certain moments where Clara does disobey, which I thought was very, very interesting, you know, such as the moment where she purposefully didn't go with the, the other girl who, who wanted to select her because she had saved herself for Josie, something that's kind of against her own programming um, to do and something, in fact, that the manager even commented on, you know, she's very surprised because Clara's always been a very obedient uh, android and yet here she is not, you know, following that, that, uh, that rule. But to a certain extent, I, I can see what you're talking about, Steph, there in terms of there's a lot of ideas here. I think in terms of all of Ishiguro's novel, this one is probably the most packed with themes and ideas, you know, to encounter. I think what he does really well, and maybe this is where Michelle had, you know, part of the problem as well, what I think he does really well is to explore one idea in such rich, complex detail um, and with such depth that it makes it really, really fascinating. In this one, there is a, a multitude of ideas uh, being explored, but I didn't run into the problem of thinking they were not 
um, fully fleshed out or not connected. Because for me, it just sort of explores the idea that I think a lot of Ishiguro novel explores, which is you know, the human condition itself. What does it mean to be human? And it's that defamiliarization that Michelle was talking about. You know, so uh, the android is trying to observe human behavior. But what I found also really fascinating about this uh, and what makes it different to other, uh, I suppose, Martian narrative is this android is aware of the rules and this android is, is learning very, very quickly. So she's learning you know, with each mistake she makes and she's telling us all the mistakes that she makes along the way. And we can sort of see in a certain sense, I mean, there's, a, there's still some scenes that leave me a little bit puzzled as to why you know, Clara is treated with such coldness afterwards. Um, and I think that's kind of the beauty of it uh, in that, you know, we're not completely aware of everything as we would in most Martian you know, narrative. We're kind of like, oh, well, you know, obviously that's a book or, you know, obviously that's rain or obviously that's blah, blah, blah. In this one, we're kind of having to guess exactly what social conventions has been broken by Clara and where they're just sort of left sometimes also slightly puzzled as to what she did wrong or rather what else she could have done. So the example I'm really thinking about is the one where um, the mother decides to take Clara to, um, to that waterfall uh, and not Josie. And as a result, both of them seemed angry with her uh, afterwards. Uh, and in fact, she commented that Josie stayed cold with her for quite a long time after that experience. And I'm kind of left there at the end of that experience thinking, well, what other choice did Clara have? And I think a lot of us have gone through something similar where we're pulled into opposite direction and we have to make a choice in terms of, well, should she stay with Josie or should she go with, you know, Josie's mother? Um, both of them have commanded that she go. So what other option is available to her? You know, so the complexity of, of some of those things and it's not a completely, you know, the, the Android is not completely um, devoid of understanding. She is actually very, very aware of the situation, but she, like I think a lot of people are quite confused by some of those social conventions. And I think that's what the novel does quite well. It takes a lot of those social conventions and uh, examine them microscopically. Uh, and what Ishiguro I think does particularly well is never really to provide an answer, but rather just sort of presents the problems for us and, and allows us to, to work through them ourselves. And that's what I found with a lot of the, uh, this novel um, in particular. There are certain things that uh, I do uh, and I still am struggling with. Some of them really bizarre and mundane, such as I still have no idea, maybe this is where the Martian uh, analogy falls apart for me, because I actually have no idea what that damn Cootings machine is. Now, I'm, I, I've tried very hard to look to figure out what this machine is from the description. I've even went on the internet to look for it and I cannot find the meaning behind or, or what exactly it's meant to represent. Did you go, did either of you figure out what the Cootings machine was? Nope, sorry. I, I presumed it was kind of a little like a sort of a, a steampunk aesthetic where, you know, because I'm just thinking about the, the, the sort of the, the machine that is just producing you know, randomly producing pollution with no sort of explanation, you know, because it's, 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 it's mobile, it moves from suburb to suburb, it spews forth, you know, all of these, you know, and obviously we're thinking on one hand we've got this really sort of super high-tech world where we can, you know, sort of create these artificial friends and, you know, sort of clone um, daughters so that they can be, you know, mapped or, you know, so, so they can be replaced by the AF and, you know, so we've got this, 
sort of really super high tech sort of world, advanced technology, all of that sort of thing. But then on the other hand, we've got these filthy mechanisms of pollution that are not explained because I think that it's, um, you know, sort of it's a node of resistance. It's just the, um, I, I think it's also part of the enterprise of the novel because, you know, sort of half of what's so challenging about it is because, you know, there are, there are just gaps that you can simply only sort of, you know, negotiate by jumping. Like you can't logically make connections. You can make guesses, stabs in the dark. And so I feel like it's part of occupying Clara in a sense is what would it be like? It's almost like, what would it be like to be an artificial intelligence, an artificial friend? You know, you could do so much to sort of bridge the gaps. You could do so much to start to learn and understand more. But wherever you went, there would be these limitations and these walls that you couldn't actually cross. So, so um, Yeah, sorry, Michelle. Um, that's kind of my problem with the book, though, because there were so many gaps that, like, the Cootings machine question, or even, like, why artificial friends exist in the first place or what lifting is, um, all I'll, of these... I can answer the lifting question. Well, I know what lifting is now, but, like, it took me a long time to get to to figure out what lifting is but like because like I think my broader point is because she doesn't know Clara doesn't know it's hard for us to know and therefore everything seems a little bit arbitrary like it exists in the world of the novel because it has to exist in the world of the novel rather than exist in the world of the novel because it's organically part of the world of the novel like I felt like I could see the machinery of the plot clunking along a bit more than I usually see in any Shigeru novel yeah I mean I I didn't see that issue mainly because I didn't think Clara was as oblivious um, in the way she understands that world. I, I think Clara is actually much more aware than her narrative lets on and she doesn't actually reveal purposely possibly to us a lot of the information. Uh, she she withholds it and the example that I'm thinking about is actually the revelation of what um, Mr Capaldi was doing. You know, um, when she discovered you know that kind of the, the model of Josie, you know, the, the Android model of Josie, it wasn't a surprise to Clara. Uh, it may have been a surprise to us, although at the same time it wasn't. I mean, one of the things I really love about Ishiguro's novel is, is the way his surprises aren't kind of like on a M. Night Shyamalan twists where you're not expecting them. You can see them coming maybe, you know, a couple of pages before they arrive. Um, and so I don't quite know how he did that in the narrative, but that's kind of what happened with me when I was reading that part. I knew what was coming. And I wondered how Clara would respond to it. And the fact that she wasn't surprised by what she discovered and the fact that she actually is even mentioned in the narrative that she had already figured out, you know, part of what was going on, the part she didn't figure out, which, you know, um, which is the part that we possibly as a reader may have figured out also is that the mother wanted Clara then to embody, you know, the, the, the Josie android. That was the part that was missing from her understanding of, of that situation. But the fact that she had already figured out what was going on with, you know, with the, with the portrait, uh, while Josie, and we still don't quite know whether Josie knew or you know, don't quite know about it. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the, the point, I, I guess, with that first-person narrator where you know, they can withhold information from us, but at the same time reveal information too. So I did get quite a strong sense that Clara was very aware of a lot of things that, that are going on uh, in her life, even though she, she doesn't reveal them to us at the time anyway. Well, I, I kind of wondered if it was to do with, you know, sort of the fact that actually she wasn't 
capable of surprise. Do you know, because, you know, sort of like the emotional valencies throughout, you know, sort of, so yes, she's acutely, she's an acute observer and she's deeply, you know, sort of attuned to the, the, the finer, um, you know, sort of observational details and, and the meaning, like she's a meaning-making machine in many respects in her ability to sort of take on board things and, and then, uh, you know, sort of meditate upon them and revise her behaviour you know, sort of in a, in a way that is, you know, sort of uncanny. Um, but also, I, I mean, if you notice, there's, uh, because she, the, the, in, in her characterization or in, in, this, in the range of, you know, sort of, um, sort of possibilities of, of mapping humans onto Clara and, you know, sort of thing, actually, uh, you know, sort of the, the the emotions are interesting because, of course, she's motivated to try and save uh, Josie in this really quite um, sort of religious, <laughs> you know, sort of um, almost perhaps paganistic kind of way. So we can see that she's got this motivation to save Josie. Um, and I, I guess that is where also you see the similarity with, um, you know, sort of remains of the day in where the, the, the sort of the emotions you need to, um, you know, sort of you need to divine them from the actions because they're underneath, the, they're sort of subterranean, they're sort of submerged. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, some, so uh, I, I, I found extraordinarily tedious the trips to the barn oh my goodness I thought if she made one more trip to the barn I was I was out of there I, I just you know I hated those bits too I have to say and it was just so laboriously described like usually when Shiguru describes something you know it's very beautifully done but the, just the the trips to the barn and I actually found the the sun bit, like I said, I enjoyed it reading this on a page to page level, but I found all of the bits about her belief in the sun incredibly tiresome. <laughs> um, I found them problematic because I couldn't yeah. understand how she could be tutoring Rick in what seemed like quite advanced robotics and science, etc., and then at the same time have this sort of misconception about the sun. Mm. So, so I, I, for me, I found that a, a sort of a conundrum that, you know, I could understand, I, I feel like there were ways in which that could have been done that I might, you know, sort of but the way that it sat with me there was I thought, how can you have her on one hand, you know, sort of have this really advanced understanding of all of these, you know, sort of um, robotics, physics, pres presumably, um, but then not have an understanding of the way the sun moves um, around the world. And I just didn't know where the sun, like like you said, where does the sun thing come from? And I understand that she doesn't understand what the sun is, but it just seems like such a, as you say, a, a strange, yeah, it just seemed like such a strange belief for her to take up this, yeah, as you say, it was quasi um, religious. It was like ritualistic belief in the sun. I just didn't know where that came from. And to be honest, I think, like, I, I've been thinking about, like, what if you just got rid of that part, <laughs> you know, and, and and excised it from the novel altogether? I don't think it would make that much difference because I think her, what I think was more interesting is the the plan to, to turn her into Josie, essentially. And I would have liked to have seen more unpacking of that. But then I just, we got sidetracked by this belief in the sun that there's always I don't know, it just sort of took me out of the story. I just hated that, those parts. And those, 
you're right, those trips to the barn were deadly. I just found them so so dull. <laughs> um, I, I, ha- I had a slightly different reaction. I didn't, I didn't like the whole sun thing either, but for different reasons, actually. Um, I didn't like it because I actually thought the opposite of what you were saying, actually, Steph, that he had hammered the point home too often. Um, I was just too aware of why she was so fixated on the sun that it kind of lost a lot of the, um, uh, the emotional uh, relevance, I, I guess, you know. So um, for me, you know, the, the fact that she, so, so basically the way I read it was that, you know, the fact that she misread what happened with that beggar man, that was the, the sole reason why she, she thought the sun had this mysterious power because she saw what she believed was the death of the beggar man and his dog, which incidentally is really, really mysterious. I still haven't quite figured out what happened there. And a part of me seems to believe that they are actually androids, the, the beggar man and... Sorry? A fade out. Yeah, like a, an, a fade out android because the sun did revive them and maybe they were actually solar powered just like she is as well. And an older model, they didn't get enough sunlight. So that's, that's why they actually had that appearance of, of death. And she maybe didn't pick up because she's mentioned at the start of the novel that she doesn't always figure out that they're androids until, you know, she gets to a certain distance um, within them. So I'm wondering whether, you know, she had misread that thinking they were actually human and the sun revived them or they were playing such a good job, uh, job at playing dead that, you know, she, she didn't figure out that, you know, the sun didn't do that. So it was actually a misreading of her. And, and she keeps mentioning the beggar man over and over and over again, you know, revive Josie as you did, you know, the beggar man, you know, you did, you're right. And I think also because her entire life has revolved around the sun giving her energy. Um, she she didn't have that, I suppose, ability to understand that the sun's rays only work on her or an, on androids and not on humans. She hasn't made that you know, disconnect between herself and, and her human counterpart. So there were a, a few of those misunderstandings that made her kind of interpret the sun the way that she, she did. Uh, and I also sort of saw her as, and maybe this is probably why I'm, um, the novel kind of affected me the, the, the way it did. But um, I kind of saw all the AFs as not really androids, but actually dogs. Uh, and because my own you know, dog had died recently, um, you know, I had really, really strong emotional connection to Clara um, as a result of this, because everything that was described about them had this very kind of dog-like tendency, you know, even to the point where you know, they're hoping somebody would come pick them out and adopt them. And, you know, they had these different personalities and they had this unconditional love about them that just sort of, you know, bring things along. And then the, the, the ending, which, you know, you know if, if your dog had died recently, would probably <laughs> affect you in the same way too, you know, kind of really brought about that idea. Because um, I've been watching a lot of videos of elderly dogs who get sort of abandoned because their owners don't want to take care of them anymore because they've, they've, they've reached a certain age. And so that image of Clara sort of sitting there in this yard, you know, surrounded by the scraps of, you know, human reject, just for me was just so touching. I couldn't, you know, not love Clara as a result. Is Clara a dog? Because she did need to be carried through the grass, which, you know, like if she was well, a normal heart, <laughs> Well, well, well she's, 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 a, <laughs> she's an older model AF. So as a result, she couldn't quite navigate through the, the sludge of some of the areas. Um, she thought it was going to be solid ground. And so that's why Rick then had to come carry her, her out. She couldn't see above the grass line. So. <laughs> she was described as quite short because but remember by the end of the novel, Josie had grown taller than, taller than she had. Um, and so I think she's quite childlike as well, especially the, the description of her as a sort of French looking you know, young girl. Um, 
and I still can't quite imagine what, what that looks like, but I think she's relatively short. Um, and because she's an older model, she doesn't quite have that mobility that some of the, the newer model might have, um, as we kind of saw from that bullying scene where the boys keep threatening to throw her and see whether she landed on, you know, and again, another analogy of dogs, you know, the way that, you know, humans always want dogs to do these tricks and, you know, you know test them and, and, and the way, you know, some, some kids can be quite cruel with what they do. So I think my reading of it based on that uh, perception may have colored the way I, I, I sort of responded to, to Josie and, and really paid attention to some of the things that she was talking about. I guess. Well, I suppose she was like a dog or a pet in some ways, but she also wasn't in other ways. Hmm. Um, I mean, she's which, not advanced, obviously, yeah. Yeah, but this is why I think I think something about this book is a little bit muddled. Like I, I just think that all of these ideas, maybe there's maybe too much emphasis on thinking through ideas rather than the story. I just found the way that she was sort of dog-like, but also the way that she was also highly advanced, I found hard to conceptualize yeah. at times or cut or hard to to follow at times the ways in which she was because she was incredibly insightful in some ways but she was also incredibly not insightful in other ways and I don't necessarily think that that was done in a logically consistent fashion uh, I, I found I, I would have liked I mean I found the ending quite touching but I also like I don't know I think this book would have been wild if the mother had actually succeeded in turning her into into Josie because that would have opened up a whole another can of worms well, I, um, that is so much more interesting than sitting her, you know like sitting there in the garbage dump you know just sort of being I, I was, happy to be in a garbage dump <laughs> I mean I was slightly afraid of the, the novel going down that direction where the mother kind of got her wish and you know um, uh, Clara ended up as, as Josie mainly because there's already a, a story that kind of deals in, in that and I was afraid it was going to then having to try to to compete with that which is uh, AI you know the um, where a robot is designed to love a human if they whisper the, the password. Uh, and so the mother in this case did whisper the password and the robot then falls you know, absolutely in love with the mother, but then the mother actually is able to conceive and you know, abandons the robot. Um, so that there is a story very similar to, to that already. And I was afraid if Ishiguro went down that direction, I wasn't quite sure where he would be able to take that story without it imitating, I suppose, you know, the, the AI story uh, overly much. But I think, you know, maybe to address your point about the, um, the disjointed aspect of, of the ideas explored, Steph, um, I always saw it as all those ideas are actually connected by uh, one central idea, which is uh, humanity's fear of loneliness. Because uh, Clara always sort of talked about the fact that, you know, the, the lengths that people would go through just to avoid being lonely. Um, and I think that was kind of an interesting way to, to look at it. I mean, I think sometimes she does misinterpret things for loneliness. So I think she does misinterpret grief as loneliness, but to equate, I think, grief to loneliness, for me, is quite an insightful way to look at grief to a certain extent uh, as well. But, you know, everything she saw, because she was built to be a companion, um, her whole existence revolved around this idea that human must be terrified of being lonely if they do all these things just to avoid, you know, being lonely. But at the same time as doing everything to make themselves lonely. And, and yeah. you know, I have to say I did find, you know, sort of that there was a, a lot of uh, significance to, you know, for, for me, one of the strongest elements was actually the element of horror, you know, because I think, you know, sort of number one, the idea of a world where parents have reached the point that it's worth risking the lives of their children you know, because so many of the kids are dying 
or if not dying, having these awful, long, lingering illnesses in, you know, sort of leading to death in order for them to be lifted, you know, number one, but then also structuring all of the society around the way that, you know, that there's this, um, I guess, isolate, whether it's because of the illness, uh, because all of these children are at home, you know, so, so it had this sort of lockdown feel to it because actually, and that was what was so bizarre, you know, sort of rather than, you, I guess, socialising children from the beginning, um, there's this, you, you, you keep them at home, you lift them, and then you have these strange ceremonies where they're, you know, sort of, which is so essential because if they can't learn to socialise in these very artificial you know, sort of parent-supervised get-togethers, then they're not going to be able to survive. And in fact, you have severe reservations about any of their capacities to exist in the outside world and if they do, what kind of human beings they are going to be. And I think that's where the story gets interesting because when you look at what the um, that generation is 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 looking like becoming and even what that generation of parents is and the tension between you know the father um who's and the and the mother because they've lost a child they've, they've already lost a child and they've already gone down the mr capaldi road once before um and that's where i see that that horror element and yeah. sort of highlighting it as as make as, as sort of vivify and that's why i think when i look back on the book I'm much more um, struck by it because I can vivify those lines in a way that I couldn't as I was making my way through it because it was, I found it so, I found it so tedious seeing things that I knew being refracted through this very limited, um, you know, sort of focaliser where I, I sort of, I, 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 I want, I guess I wanted more. Um, I mean, I, I definitely see that the horror element, especially in, in the whole cell, episode you know, I mean we, we almost had you know um almost that Jane Eyre you know locked wife you know in, in the attic thing happening with Sal uh, especially mm -hmm. with uh, uh, Helen's description of you know she was sure she, she saw you know Chrissy out there you know holding on to this girl who looked exactly like Sal and when they you know left for a little while thinking what's going on here is Sal actually alive and you know we're not you know this hasn't been real revealed to us yet um, and I kind of like that about the narrative, that it, it still left me surprised um, when that, I suppose, was revealed, that it actually wasn't Sal, it was, it was the doll. So they had gone down that path and it didn't work, it didn't take. And for me, there was something very moving about what the father, Paul, said about that whole experience, which is that he doesn't believe um, that Chrissy, the mother, is capable of loving an android. You know, as much as she may want to, She's just too much of a traditionalist to ever, you know, kind of fall in love with, with uh, a machine. Whereas he, he felt, you know, the reason he was angry uh, at Capaldi was because he is probably more likely to do that. And his fear of actually then becoming attached to an android because he sees himself as somebody who doesn't have that kind of reservation that, that, that Chrissy had. Um, I, I love those sort of, exchange and the sort of revelations about the character because we see how differently they behaved to the way that they actually think you know so Paul who's objecting against the whole um, you know Josie android thing actually reject is rejecting it because he's afraid he 
will accept it, whereas the mother who's accepting it doesn't understand that she will most likely reject it. And, you know, there is, isn't that kind of uh, a lot of times the, the duality of human experience? We always go towards the things that we know will probably not work out and push away a lot of times the things that we're probably afraid of accepting. Yeah, I, I think that it, it was interesting to see the way that in many respects the characterization of the, you know, sort of the husband and the wife and, you know, was very closely aligned to, you know, a typical sort of divorced set of parents. You know, he's late, she's angry. You, you, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like there, there, were, there were some really sort of familiar um, sort of tropes employed in the, the way that that unfolded. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the idea, you know, sort of that I, I think that the idea that sort of carries that story across was the fact that, you know, sort of it was the mother who even after all and everything and so close to losing both children still has that, I mean, because the vitriolic attack on Rick um, you know, which is wonderful because obviously you don't take it as face value because almost it could be read as saying, why did I do this? Of course I shouldn't have done this. And he certainly um, shows the emotional. And, and I guess that's the interesting thing as well because actually, you know, sort of out of all of the characters, you know, Rick does consistently, you know, sort of behave with the highest level of, you know, sort of moral ethical and you know sort of I guess because his concern he shows concern for Clara you know he he doesn't lash out when he's lashed at um you, you know and we see that he's this brilliant mind just on of his own and and I think this is what was interesting because in sort of in comparing say for example Josie lifted that room of brats lifted and and Rick and we can see that actually well what that what is the lifting doing that can be quantified as improving the kids? Nothing. <laughs> and that's what I think is so fantastically futile about what he set up is a world of parents who feel as though, in, and, and I think that that's where that story gets, it, 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 you know, really sort of comes alive because it, it, it does map so well onto parents who are effectively, I guess, you know, sort of trading so much in order that their children can have what they perceive of as necessary, essential, what everyone else is doing. I mean, you know, you think about parents working seven days, this, that, whatever, um, and missing the point of what is sort of actually needed, which is to create human beings who are human, um, you know, who have values and priorities. Um, and so so, so I, I sort of... Um, yeah, it, it's, it's this weird experience of having not enjoyed the book and yet loved it retrospectively, um, despite all of, the, despite saying that I don't think I could read it again, just because I did, I, that's how little I enjoyed the experience of reading it. But the ideas um, there and the, because it's so typical Ishiguru, you know, sort of in terms of the understatedness 
of it and the way that you sort of, you know, sort of it's only upon reflection that you start to sort of really sort of feel, you know, sort of the knife's edge of the story um, that, you know, sort of makes me love and admire him even as I, I, I just, I genuinely don't think I could read that book again just simply because, you know, I found it so, 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 so difficult. And, and just even the sheer pathos of leaving us in a junkyard, you know, the manager clearly reduced as well. Um, and, you know, so sort of this whole idea of the disposability of the human, um, the humans that we value, the humans that we just cast aside. Um, and so I think that's where his power comes, is his ability to sort of create analogies that in their strangeness um, and, you know, sort of unexpectedness take us into, you know, sort of this really sort of profound understanding of those things like you know sort of the disposability of you know sort of um valuing the the the, the you know sort of the the unimportant material and, and superficial over the moral intrinsic kind of qualities of what it is to be human um you know it feels like a very wise novel it feels like a novel written by somebody at a point where they've really had a lot of time to think about you know sort of um, the human race um and and so 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 yeah I, I, and and that's why I feel so divided because I, I just love the ideas but my goodness <laughs> the barn the grass <laughs> I just I mean it was interesting because even while you were saying that one thought that occurred to me I think at the midway point when I was reading the novel was I, I really need to reread this book again because I felt that there was so much I missed um, because so much was obscured, you know, from what I was reading. I was trying to piece together um, so much of what was happening that I didn't give uh, some of those scenes the proper weight that they deserve, um, that I kind of just glossed over them because I didn't understand what they were trying to get at and I thought I'll, I'll just keep them in the back of my mind. And it'll, it'll pop up again later, I'm sure, and it does. But by that stage, we've already forgotten some of the nuances that, that he's packed into some of those scenes. So, you know, while you were describing that, I was thinking about that scene where one of the mother made a faux pas to, to Chrissy. Uh, and, you know, she starts to, to cry in, in abject apology, saying, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry I shouldn't have said that. And I thought, you know, I really need to read, read that scene again because now I understand what that scene was actually about. It was about the loss of Sal, you know, the, the, the older daughter. But at that stage, I wasn't aware of what was going on, mainly because I suppose Clara also wasn't aware of what was going on. So for me, the, the novel needed a, a revisit. Um, and it's, uh, it's more so this novel than any other Ishiguro novel where I felt that I had need to revisit it because I just felt that I missed so much. And the reason for that is because, you know, I, I think uh, we've all said it, that it is so packed, so densely packed a novel with ideas um, that I think an initial reading just seems like we've, we've just sort of skimmed through the surface of what it was trying to, to do and missed a lot of the, the finer details, which is what makes an Ishiguro novel really you know, a lot of joy to read, those finer details. And I felt that I missed quite a lot of those finer details as, as, as I was reading it. And because I didn't have that I suppose, reaction that Michelle had to the defamiliarization uh, aspect. I, it wasn't a, a tiresome read for me. Even the dreaded trips to the barn, uh, <laughs> they, they weren't tiresome, mainly because by the end of the novel, I saw what he was doing there with the whole religious idea. Um, because it's, I, I was afraid 
of where that whole religious thing was going with the sun. And at the end, we get this strange, almost miraculous moment where Josie seemingly is revived by the sun. And Clara believes it is the sun's doing, but we at the, as readers are left ambivalent. Now, it seems like one of those strange coincidences that happen, but those strange coincidences that often lead to these, you know, the rise of religious sects <laughs> as a result, because people went, oh my God, it must be a, an act of miracle, but sometimes it is just a coincidence. Maybe she was on her way to get better and then this just happened at the same time. You know, they, they do happen. And I think our skeptical mind tends to go down that direction, but Clara is convinced that it is, you know, the sun's doing that too, it's because she did all that. But also her capacity to sacrifice was for me quite an interesting um, you know, point as well. You know, the fact that she's able to, she's willing to sacrifice the, the liquid, I forgot what it was called, inside of her in order to destroy that strange Cootings machine, uh, which is still, you know, that's, I, th I think that's the one sore spot in the novel for me. It's the Cootings machine. I can't figure it out and it drives me absolutely insane. I'm trying to picture this, this silly thing with three funnels coming out of it and shooting all sorts of strange pollution into the air, but it has some sort of function and we know that it's some sort of construction function, um, but I still can't imagine what it could possibly be. And even the adults uh, commenting on it, I think Chrissy at one stage said, how are they getting away with this? And I'm thinking, with what? What exactly? See, that's what I mean. That's an example of like the, the me mechanics of the plot driving the story, right? Like he needed to have that machine there for the story. It but wasn't I, like the machine was organically there because yeah. it's just part of the world. You know what I mean? Like it's just I, I could see the I could see the the work in this book a bit more. But I do agree with you, Jimmy, that I think that it would be really interesting to go back and reread it, especially knowing like having figured out what lifting is, having figured out like all of the things that you are in the dark about as the book proceeds, knowing what they all are by the end means that when you go back and reread, you'll have a different perspective. So I do wonder if my concerns about the novel would be alleviated. However, you know, I don't necessarily think that a novel that has to be read twice um, to understand is, is necessarily a good thing. But I, do, I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm still almost sort of working out what I feel about this book because on the one hand, I really did enjoy reading it. But on the other, I just, the more that I think about it, the more confused I get, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite have that. The more I do think about it, the more I am able to piece some of the, the, the puzzles together. So for me, it does fit quite well. There, there are mysterious things, but, you know, going back to, you know, my, my love topic here, the, the Cootings machine, uh, and to address your, your point, uh, I think it, it could be any machine. Like he, he could have mentioned any machine and they would, they would still have said the same function. He could have mentioned, for example, a steamroller, which is something I think, I think Michelle suggested earlier. Uh, and that would have still, you know, been fine because it's, uh, it is about construction because they are talking about these construction works. Um, so it, the fact that he purposely made this thing mysterious is a puzzle for me because it's, it, it could be anything. I mean, it, I, I suppose it's the, um, it's what Hitchcock or the, you know, the MacGuffin, uh, it's that unexplainable thing in, in um, a story. And this one, I, I don't know why I was so fixated on it, but I really want to know because it seems to be the key to unlocking a lot of the mysteries there. So I don't know whether you guys picked up on this particular point, but there was a there was stage after she had given the liquid. And I think she was losing something in that process because she was uh, outside the, um, the theatre waiting for, um, uh, what's his name, H Helen's uh, ex, uh, Vance. 
um, to appear. And she started to see shapes and she started to describe things in really weird ways. And I was just left there going, is this her breaking down? Is this her uh, actually, you know, kind of losing part of what makes her her because she had sacrificed this uh, important liquid? Because it, it was, you know, very strange the way that that, that section, I mean, did, did you guys pick up on that section? Yeah, and I, but I don't think that that was the sole indication that she felt compromised in some way, because I think there's another reference, and, and, and I think that that would actually feed into part of the interpretation of the last part of the narrative is, I, and, and I don't know because obviously I haven't read it a second time, but if you were reading it carefully, would you actually see a diminishment in her apprehension of the world, because you know, in many respects, because you know, sort of the 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 focalizing presence of Clara is is so central to the story. It is a story about the degree to which you know, sort of our perception of the world shapes our understanding of the world. You know, and 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 so to have that, um, and and once again, I just I always come back because you, it, it is almost sort of filmic in that idea of you know, sort of and and horror filmic in the thought, the thought of the um, you know, sort of tapping into the spinal fluid, you know, and and also you've got to sort of wonder about the father because you know it's 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 one thing to go so far with an AF, but how far do you go with an AF before things get a bit weird? Um, so, so 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 you know I think this is what's interesting is the way that the humans around Clara and and I think this is part of the point of the story is that actually um, you know sort of humans project sort of human emotions on things around them. And so you get this transgression of what, you know, sort of the boundaries are between, you know, sort of object and human. And um, and that's, you know, precisely the interesting exploration of AI that people are fascinated with in, in, in sci-fi is that you've got both Rick and um, the dad prepared to do these really quite bizarre things in order to help Clara achieve her goals <laughs> so so you know like I, I think that that and that's why when I think about the story even though I didn't enjoy you know I certainly didn't enjoy the expedition to the barn or the expedition to blow up the cootings machine and because and we we can see how limited Clara's perspective is because you know without a doubt um you know the father is going to know that there are more um cootings machines you know, that he's going to know that you're not going to bring down, you know, sort of whatever um, this machine. But once again, I think it's an aesthetic that he's deliberately sort of throwing out there, um, you know, because you, you think about the language of the portrait, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of old school language. And I think the Cootings machine is, it's, it's like that old school um, industrial revolution technology um, sort of juxtaposed with this sort of, um, you know, cutting edge cloning and AI sort of stuff. And, and so, so I, I think it's kind of like a deliberate aesthetic on, on his part. You, you know, because you think about the description of the house and the house is kind of like this uber mid-century, like I've got this image of, you know, some, one of those really cool houses. Um, so, so, so do you know what I mean? Like it's almost like a pastiche where you've got all of these um, self-conscious references to, you know, sort of particular uh, sort of, you know, architectural and industrial periods in, in, in human, um, you know, sort of the past sort of century or so. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's where I sort of mentioned earlier that it, um, for me, it's kind of a distant cousin of the Never Let Me Go world because Never Let Me Go was the same thing. It's it's speculative fiction, but it's set in the past, you know, rather than the future. But there's futuristic innovation, and I feel that Clara's the same, except rather than being set in the past, it seems eerily to be set in the present, rather than you know, um, a, a past. And you know, we, uh, and even the, you know, 
you're up with the design of the house. I mean, you know, I imagine this gorgeous, um, almost, I don't know, Edwardian house or something of that nature um, with these rolling hills in the background, with, you know, and, and there's just the two houses in this isolation uh, and this stretch of road. Uh, it didn't seem like a futuristic city to me and it wasn't described, I suppose, as a futuristic city. So I, I never had that issue. Um, but while you were talking there earlier, Michelle, I was um, thinking about this, the, the passage at the end of the novel, which, which had moved me so much. Um, and it was about basically trying to figure out uh, whether, I guess, the soul could be replicated um, because the idea is yeah, if Josie then moves her consciousness to this new, uh, not Josie, uh, Clara moves her consciousness to this Josie android, will she be able to replicate you know, that special thing that made Josie, Josie. And Clara came up with a really beautiful uh, observation about why it is that she could never replicate that and had nothing really to do with the soul at all, but rather to do with perception. And this is in that final um, page here. So I'm just gonna quickly read this out. Um, but she said to, to the manager, Mr. Capaldi believed there was nothing special inside Josie that couldn't be continued. He told the mother he searched and searched and found nothing like that. But I believe now he was searching in the wrong place. There was something very special, but it wasn't inside Josie. It was inside those who loved her. That's why I think now Mr. Capote was wrong and I wouldn't have succeeded. So I'm glad I decided as I did. And I, I think that's a really uh, profound understanding, I, I suppose, of what makes us human, that it isn't actually something maybe unique or special inside us, but the way that we observe other people and the way we feel about other people that could never be you know, replicated. But it's also that idea that we are constituted by the love of other people so that it, it's, you know, sort of fighting against the notion of, of you know, sort of the individual, um, you know, sort of as, 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 a, as a sort of a self-generating thing and, and coming to realise that intrinsic to every human being are the human beings that are in their lives and it's sort of an internalised kind of thing so 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 I, I, I and I do think that there's you know like I love the fact that he called um you know sort of the the new version the cloned version of Josie a portrait and I think what that you know especially given the fact that we were looking at um portrait of a woman on fire and sort of thinking of portrait as as you know sort of a technology but also as a way of seeing um mm -hmm. And the degree to which what the artists see brings, you know, sort of into being. And trying to capture the essence of, of that person, which, you know, is that kind of uh, elusive aspect, you know, what makes the person the person. Uh, in this case, you know, um, one of the ideas that I do struggle with is this idea of imitation. If you imitate something long enough, do you become that thing? Um, and I, I, I am moved by that description that it, it actually isn't, residing within the person themselves, but actually within the, the, the people around them who view them in that way. Uh, and I think that's a really lovely insight uh, into that, that debate or, or into that problem that, that for me was just absolutely beautiful. Look, when, when you think about people who are genuinely debating, you know, sort of the, the ethics of, you know, sort of cloning in, in real world, you know, sort of situation, which, you know, we, we know is happening from, you know, sort of woe to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe Barbara Streisand cloned a dog twice. Really? Fun, fun fact. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure. Um, but, but, you know, like we know that, that you know, sort of the, the, this, I think, is an exquisite book 
as a companion to, you know, sort of ethical considerations of, of what we can and can't do. And I think that it, it is, and I, and this is why I keep, this is why every time I talk about this book, no matter how much I hated the experience of reading it, I come to love it more. Um, because I think, Michelle, I think you have to admit, you love the book. Come on. I love just the book. Say it. You I, love I, it. I can't read it again, though. I just can't. But, you know, like when you go through each element that he's introduced to the page and, and, and you think about what, you know, sort of the, the, the greater significance of what he's saying, which is that, you know, sort of that even if um, Capaldi managed to upload Clara it just simply by lieu of the fact that, um, you know, the mum is not going to love clone, um, you know, clone Josie as much, it will change um, clone Josie. And that wonderful insight into what makes us human and that, that it is this, you know, sort of continuum, um, you know, sort of looping between, you know, sort of the people in our lives and ourselves, I think is, is you know, like it's it's a pretty pretty top-notch you know sort of notion for a, for, for a book really um, so yeah look there there it is I think um I, I look last time we talked about it I talked myself into loving it so, but just as I say the actual experience of reading it and that <laughs> it's such a conceit you know and and I, I find that really difficult in, in 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 the reading if you can't go along with the conceit and if you find the voice off-putting this book would be deadly for you I really do think I mean I I didn't have that problem my problem was separate to that but um if you don't like this this particular conceit um then this book won't work at it's all in an as an afterlife when Except as, yeah, it. like as a, as a kind of intellectual object, I suppose. Um, I, I wonder also, though, whether, because I had warnings from both of you about this conceit, um, I was actually able to enter the novel in a different mind frame. So I was I was prepared for actually, you know, um, don't want to bring back, um, you know, angle 120 trauma, but, you know, um, uh, Craig Rang's A Martian Sense Postcard Home. I was thinking of that awful poem before. I know. And I was just there thinking, oh, no, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. And so when I was thinking that and I read what I read, I went, oh, thank God, it's nothing like that. And so for me, that direct comparison made this reading much better because I was expecting a Martian Sense postcard home. And instead I got Ishiguro, which... Yeah. Well, look, I think Ishiguro is just much better than Craig Rain, but uh, sorry, Craig Rain, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he's, he's just much better. But I agree, absolutely, Michelle, that if this conceit is the kind that irritates you, you will find yourself irritated by this book. But I, you know, I think, it look, it's 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 generated such divergent responses in us um, and such a rich kind of conversation about a lot of knotty issues that I think that in itself points to something that the novel's doing right, even if we have reservations about aspects of the novel. And, and I think also that there's there's still a lot of topics that we haven't even touched that the novel raised. You know, I mean, there, there are so many things that it does. It would actually take quite a long time to unpack a lot of the ideas that the, the novel wishes to um, explore. In that sense, we've only kind of touched, uh, I don't think, even half of, of those yet. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's just that thing as well of, you know, sort of I so totally recognise that, that the enjoyment aspect of literature isn't always the sort of the primary um, goal. and. Mm. Yeah. You, you know, sort of what I've gained from reading it um, and the, the ideas that um, have been brought to the table, um, you know, for that alone, I, I definitely do not regret. <laughs> I know, I never regret reading Ishiguro. <laughs> because interestingly, I mean, your reaction, Michelle, was kind of my reaction when I read The Buried Giant. 
that I didn't love the process of reading The Buried Giant. But when, you know, when I thought about it more, I loved the ideas that it was trying to explore, um, but I just couldn't love the novel. And, and I do feel exactly what you feel now. I'm not sure that I could go back and revisit the novel because I didn't enjoy the reading as, as much as I did. But with this one, I, I didn't have that problem at all. I just, it, it was, you know, I was kind of like Steph in that sense. It was a very quick read for me. I think I stayed up to 3 a.m. one stage just <laughs> reading through it because I was so, you know, uh, entranced by where it was going. And, and for a novel to keep me awake these days is, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> an accomplishment on its own. I thought I loved The Buried Giant, actually, and I re- recently reread it, well, reread it about a year ago because I'm teaching it and um, or have been teaching it, and it, Im- it even improved on that. So I wonder if this is another one of those slow burn reads. I don't know. Um, we've completely run out of time, so I think we need to wrap up. But thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Jimmy, for coming and talking to me about Clara and the Sun and for having such interesting things to say. Thanks, Always a pleasure. Uh, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Um, you can get in touch with us at fromthelighthouse.org if you have any comments or suggestions about future episodes. And we'll see you again soon. Bye.